Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Mark. And I am Pastor Zach. And we welcome you to this podcast, which is coming a day late, but uh, hopefully will be edifying and helpful nonetheless. Um, Today we're going to be discussing bad arguments against the Christian faith. And um, part of the reason that we're doing this, um, Pastor Zach and I have been preaching through the Belgic Confession in our evenings, and um, it is often the case that the Belgic Confession sort of takes an approach of defending the Christian faith, um, sometimes against uh, bad theology within the Christian faith, and at other times um, bad theology that people just kind of naturally have. And so uh, we've been thinking about uh, maybe weaving some of those themes into the podcast here, and um, we're going to be addressing today what we consider some of the bad arguments against Christianity. Now, um, that sounds a little strange, and it could even sound a little bit hubristic, like we just think we're so much better than people would have these questions. But um, one thing I've really gained from listening to philosophers like Alvin Plantinga is that when philosophers talk, they will say, um, this is a good argument, or this is a bad argument. And they could disagree with um, the good argument and say, well, we're really going to have to wrestle with some of these mm-hmm. uh, these issues that people are bringing up about morality or uh, the nature of God or existence. Um, but Alvin Plantinga will will just be very open, and he doesn't do so pridefully, but he'll just say um, the new atheism, for example, of Richard Dawkins and um, Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris is, is very weak philosophically. And uh, I kind of appreciate that just the honesty of that mm-hmm. and that he'll he'll say now there are some atheistic arguments against the existence of god from the 20th and 19th centuries which we really have to contend with and we believe we can by using our minds and certainly by using the scriptures but let's dismiss pretty easily and quickly some of the arguments that just aren't very good and so during this episode, we're going to be focusing on some of the arguments against the Christian faith that a Christian, if you're rooted in God's word, you should have some pretty clear um, slam dunk answers to some of the things that uh, that people will say against our faith. And I think it's kind of interesting in looking at our list of arguments that these are probably the most common arguments that people would give against Christianity, but often uh, they're very weak. Yeah, and before you think we're just throwing softballs at ourselves, we will get around <laughs> to trying to look at some of the more difficult arguments mm-hmm. uh, that Christians have to make that are uh, that take a little bit more brain power, a little mm-hmm. bit more bandwidth, uh, and study and research in order to respond to in, in wise and helpful ways. But nevertheless, it's helpful for people, especially uh, everyday, ordinary Christians, uh, if we can dare speak that way, uh, mm-hmm. to, ha- to have in their mind sort of, okay, what are some of the common arguments that are made that aren't really that good of arguments and that I can have helpful, um, even brief or concise, but thoughtful responses to, um, because inevitably you'll bump into these sorts of things as you go. Yeah. Uh, and so we don't want to create people who feel like they have a canned answer for mm-hmm. everything, but mm-hmm. we do want want people to be uh, to be guided to have some guidance in how to uh, address these things that can get brought up sometimes in just everyday conversation uh, with with friends or family or something you may see on TV I often see the National Geographic magazines you know it's usually around Christmas or Easter yep. uh, where they, they pop up saying strange things yeah, about Bart Ehrman is their favorite mm-hmm. yeah exactly be, uh, so we'll actually look a little bit at Bart Ehrman today but Mark where do you want to start? What What is one that you find people people bringing up quite a bit? Well, 
a lot of these are de- sort of determined by the person, the type of person who would be opposing something about the Christian faith. And so the first one, um, the Trinity, would probably not be that much of a problem for the atheist as much as it would be for the Mormon or Jehovah's right. Witness. Right. Um, or the Muslim would have a big issue in mm-hmm. some ways with uh, with the, the doctrine of the Trinity. And so um, the argument against the Trinity goes something like um, the Trinity isn't in the Bible. They would say the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. And um, you claim to be a monotheistic religion. And so Trinity and monotheism um, seem incompatible to um, particularly the the Muslim person. Mm -hmm. Um, The Mormon isn't really as worried about monotheism because Mormonism is very clearly a polytheistic religion. Um, For, you know, I brought this up when I preached on Article 1 of the Belgic Confession that Mormonism, um, that we believe in the Reformed faith, the Christian faith, that there is one God, a simple spiritual being mm-hmm. um, who has always existed and will be the only God who ever exists. Mm-hmm. And so that is monotheism. But the Mormon believes a little mantra that goes something like, as God is, he, um, sorry, as man is, God once was, as God is, man will become. Oh, man. And so uh, that means that we become divine, basically, um, because they believe that Jesus became divine and was sort of the, the spirit child of, of God and Mary. Yeah. But anyways, um, they will say at your front door, so Christians be ready, the Trinity isn't in the Bible. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Is it in the Bible? No, it's not. It's not no, the, the word isn't in the Bible, but <laughs> the Trinity is certainly in the Bible, and that's why this is an, a bad argument against right. Christianity. And uh, both Pastor Zach and I have preached and taught recently on this topic of the Trinity, and I said in my sermon, this is a slam-dunk Christian doctrine. It is certainly very clearly taught in the New Testament, and I would say in order to make things work in the Old Testament as well, we would we would need yeah. to hold to a Trinitarian view of God. Yeah, it's definitely all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament and in the New. It's, it's you could say, a little bit uh, more latent in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not as as explicit, uh, but it, it's there's, I think, all the reason in the world after having read the New Testament to be able to go back into the Old Testament yeah. and see it everywhere. Especially combining John 1, Genesis 1, things like yeah. that. Yeah. And there's mention of the Spirit of God all throughout the Old Testament. Yeah. The Spirit of God, however, in the Old Testament is usually depicted as sort of God, God's active force in the yeah. world, yeah. and it doesn't have the personal uh, or it doesn't have the personal sort of connections of the usages of the spirit in the old Testament. But I I think you can go back and see that there are good hints of, of God's Trinitarian existence. Mm -hmm. Uh, We could see this also in the theophanies of God, where God appears to take on human form. He was one, like a son of man. Uh, One good one is the, the story of Shadrach, Meshach Mm -hmm. and Abednego and the Mm -hmm. fiery furnace uh, where there appears to be a fourth man in there with them protecting them uh and so i think it's quite clear in the old testament uh, especially in in light of the new testament in the new testament it's absolutely clear uh really in the gospels it's made perhaps the most clear although mm. paul's letters yeah, and the Peter's, other letters yeah. uh very clearly mention it as well jesus jesus's baptism in mark 3 mm-hmm. is is huge uh, we see the spirit descending upon him like a dove and we see the Father. So that that right there also completely destroys any argument of modalism that God wears different masks at different parts in redemptive history. Uh, at first, he's the Father, and then he sort of comes to earth as the Son. Mm. And once he's ascended, he's the Spirit. The fact that they all clearly exist in that story at the same time and are working together uh, shows something quite different than modalism. And then Matthew 28, the Great Commission, as Jesus is sending his disciples to go and witness to the world, uh, he says to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You would not want to baptize someone into the name of someone who was not God. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be to to really, I think, uh, do a disservice to God. Yeah. Uh, and so you, 
for Jesus to say to go and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit is to proclaim, I think very clearly, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are God and everything else is created. Uh, and then there are passages in the New Testament in Paul's writing, um, Romans 8, 9. He, he goes from saying the Spirit of God to, in the very next phrase, it's the Spirit of Christ. It's interchangeable. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's referring to God and Christ as the same. First mm-hmm. um, Peter 1, 2, uh, this is a greeting of Peter where he mentions all three by name. Ephesians 2, 18, all three are also mentioned there. Mm-hmm. John 1, 1 really is also a slam dunk. If you can prove that Christ is God, which I think that that yeah. absolutely clearly says, then you can prove that God is not just the Father, but is also the Son. Yeah, uh, And that opens up, of course, the door for the Spirit as well. And this is one of those issues where there is mystery in it, and so Satan can use that that place of mystery to sort of drive a wedge into people's uh, faith and, and cause doubt. Um, I, in a lot of these um, arguments, there is some level of mystery um, for the development of Scripture, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that took a lot of work of the Spirit, of course, working through people, sometimes in mysterious ways. And so whenever there is that that area of mystery satan is going to attack at those areas and cause people to to doubt um and so certainly the doctrine of the trinity the doctrine of the incarnation Mm -hmm. um very mysterious but uh one that we must hold to in order to be christians um are going to be um it's not as though they're soft points because both doctrines are very solid and can be defended with scripture but um they require faith Mm -hmm. And uh, they they don't um, they can't be as uh, as as clearly demonstrated as something say like the atonement where um, we can understand the Old Testament sacrificial system we can see that Christ atoned for our sins um, just like what God was was telling people to uh, enact uh, through their sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Christ is Mm -hmm. the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense, I think. Um, um, Whereas this doctrine of the Trinity um, is going to involve some mystery. It's far beyond us. And as I told my class a few weeks ago when I was teaching on this, if you could put God in your mind, he's not God. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you could completely understand and comprehend everything about God, no problem. Uh, you're probably worshiping an idol at that point. There, We should expect mystery for God, who is an infinite spiritual being. Uh, he is beyond, far, far beyond anything we could even hope to ever grasp. And mm. so, yeah, you're exactly right. There has to be some element of mystery. But the Trinity does make sense of a lot of the Christian life, too. Yeah, yeah. it helps uh, explain a lot of things. Without yeah. the Trinity, it would be really hard to explain how how salvation could happen in a monotheistic system. Mm. Um, I I think that this is something the Reformed tradition has done very well of of explaining. Uh, I think Calvin in the Institutes, I want to say it's in book three, the beginning of book three, so it'd be chapter one, maybe even section one, makes the point that how could we be saved by something that God and Jesus Christ effected at his time, about 1,500 years ago. Mm. So he, basically he's saying, Jesus did something to die on the cross for us. Mm-hmm. But how do, why, why does that mean anything for us today, mm. now? You know, plenty of people died back then <laughs> on crosses. Sure. Why d- didn't their sacrifices, or if we could call them that, why didn't their deaths do anything for us? Well, it's because we need the Spirit. Mm-hmm. We need the Spirit to apply all of what Christ has done and accomplished uh, and who he is. That We need the Spirit to bring all of those benefits to us and apply them to us now, today. Without the Spirit, uh, we, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have that. We wouldn't have that transformation, that renewal, that regeneration. Yeah. And without the Son, God would not have been able to step into our place and to redeem us. And so... We have to have the Trinity in order to make sense of our lives, of our salvation. Uh, how could we pray today if there if there were no Spirit? 
the spirit is 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 truly God's agent on earth. Uh, he he is is how we pray. We pray through the spirit mm-hmm. in the son um, or in the spirit through the son to the father, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Uh, and that, that that is really important to keep in mind. I, I don't think a Muslim can properly answer that question, uh, at least not in a way that would be persuasive to me. Yeah, well, there are definitely other theologies of salvation, other soteriologies, um, but uh, hmm. part of my sermon on the Trinity this past Sunday night was that uh, the most appealing salvation to me very much is the salvation of the Trinitarian God that he earns for us. Um, mm-hmm. One of the many reasons would be that with the doctrine of the Trinity, God remains absolutely transcendent and absolutely imminent. And so um, mm-hmm. the, right. some of the other monotheistic religions really, they do propose a transcendent God, but he is more of a distant transcendent God and who acts um, yeah. in the world. Uh, the deist would sort of disagree with that, but other monotheistic religions would say, yes, God acts and sort of moves things uh, almost as if, uh, you know, he would uh, cause an earthquake or something like that. And then, mm-hmm. and then, um, but, but he's not, to me, it seems acting in the hearts of people on nearly the same level as what the Holy Spirit does yeah. um, in dwelling a person. Um, yeah. And so he remains transcendent in that he is uh, totally sovereign and overall creation, but absolutely present first through Christ um, and then next through the, the gift of the Holy Spirit after Jesus' ascension. So hmm. it's a it's a it's an amazing salvation that we uh that we learn about because of this doctrine of the trinity so maybe along with that there is this accusation that um jesus was a a good teacher uh an impressive guy very nice to people um who the roman authorities didn't like him because he had a reputation as a bit of a political rabble rouser and um after he died on the cross this messianic savior story was concocted by his disciples afterwards so um, the big proponent of this is bart ehrman who is a uh, i think he's a professor at university of north carolina at least he was Hmm. fairly recently of religious studies and um he wrote a book called um what how how jesus was turned into god or how jesus became how jesus became god yeah and that's the whole point of the book something along those lines after jesus died these stories just came out of nowhere or or they came from the disciples um and they're sort of hallucinations or he gives all kinds of reasons for that but the early church really cooked it up and turned it into a full-blown yeah like a mythology yeah uh so uh both zach and i would consider this to be a a weak argument even though bert airman is a very smart person yeah and well educated uh, yeah but um what you've got some resources here, I know on our on our document. Uh, what would you point people to to yeah? To so, Airman is not entirely saying a lot of new things. This has yeah. been a thesis that has gone back uh, at least a century, really more than a century uh, beyond him. It kind of goes back to uh, certain church historians, really coming out of the of, of Germany and the post Enlightenment world. One of them being. Uh, Adolf von Harnack, um, and there's others, uh, I want to say Bauer, I forget the, the first name, uh, but these guys basically posited the thesis that uh, a certain version of many versions of Christianity in the early church uh, happened to win out, and you know, as historians will say, the victors tell a story, and so this strong version of what they would consider sort of orthodoxy, uh, with a lowercase o, Uh, began to to hold sway in the Roman Empire, and then by the time of Constantine, Mm. it became basically pretty concrete, and they won, and they were able to kick out all the other variants of Christianity. And so according to this thesis, there's no such thing as Christianity, that there's lots of Christianities. Uh, There's different versions Mm. of Christianity that eventually one just happened to win out and suppressed the others. And so Airman has been pretty uh, influential in, in sort of revitalizing this this movement. 
in, a, in the present age. But one of the best scholars working uh, so, sort of to counter these sorts of claims is Larry Hurtado, which I believe, you know, I'm not entirely sure of Larry's story, but I want to say he was a professor at Oxford University and has done a lot of research into uh, early manuscripts of the Christian faith. And he's been able to show uh, through various books uh, of his how Christ was worshipped as early as the the 40s. That's not the 1940s. That is like the year 40 AD. So this is just a handful of years after uh, Christ's death. So he's showing just through manuscript evidence that he was worshipped at least that early, if not earlier. Yeah. Of course, I think he would suggest that he was being worshipped earlier, but we have manuscript evidence that he was worshipped very, very soon, less than a decade after Christ's death. And so he also makes the case that this was happening not just for Gentiles, which for Gentiles to add another God to their pantheon wouldn't have been all that difficult to do, but it was happening uh, even with Jews. So Jews, monotheistic Jews, were worshiping Christ and were understanding him to be God. Uh, And so there was already sort of this Hmm. uh, understanding that God was father and was son and was spirit and so Hurtado's work is really really interesting and really helpful in in all these sorts of conversations well and it's important to add to that that uh, certainly Christians believe that Jesus was worshipped in you know in his life right. as uh, when he entered the boat uh, the disciples worshipped him when mm-hmm. before the ascension um, in at the end of Luke's gospel it says that they worshipped him yeah. And he ascended, and then they they left full of joy, um, and so and John and the end of John's gospel, right with right. Thomas. Thomas says, "My, my Lord and my God." So that's a certainly a profession of worship, and so we certainly believe that the Bible says that Jesus was worshipped. But what Hurtado is showing is that there's manuscript evidence, extra biblical manuscript yeah. evidence that shows that Jesus is being worshipped by Jewish people um, as God. So. Um, you put those two together that the scriptures profess he's worshipped and these other manuscripts do, and that gives a lot of very good, solid evidence that this isn't just something that came up two or three centuries after Jesus' life, that, well, we need a new God because the Roman gods aren't really doing it for us, or uh, the accusation within this is that it was very political um, on Constantine's part and on the part of maybe some other Roman authorities, that, well, if, if they shape Christianity into an image that, that they can kind of wield as, a, as a, a tool of keeping people down, keeping them in their place, then, then we'll, we'll form this God into the way that we want him to be so that we can control people with it. Um, yeah. There's a lot of, of pretty wild speculation going on in that thesis. And uh, um, mm-hmm. is it true that some self-professed Christians have uh, used the doctrines of uh, the church to keep people down? Yes. Uh, And uh, this is certainly the case. We'll get to this maybe a little bit later, a different argument. Um, But uh, does that necessarily then mean that the whole argument about Jesus' deity and the Trinity and um, the things professed about the Bible in Jesus are false? No, absolutely not. Because something is misused doesn't mean that it can't fulfill the function that's originally intended to, which is, um, yeah. of course, the, the truth is that Jesus is God. Yeah, and if you're want, wondering what book that is from Larry Hurtado, uh, the one that I would recommend would be How on Earth Did Jesus Become a God? Uh, and so he's really working through that uh, through that whole discussion. A lot of this is also related to to, and we can just do this real quickly too, hmm. is it's related to the discussion about the canon. How did the canon come to be? Yeah. Did this victorious church that sort of won and suppressed the other churches, did they just enforce a certain canon that fit with their beliefs? And we would say, no, definitely not. The, the canon of scripture was not something that was was strong-handed by uh by the, the sort of people who had political power. This is often the argument that Constantine and the Nicene Creed, uh, they sort of put this stuff together and they enforced a canon. Actually, yeah. this is simply not true. The canon had been 
<clears throat> collected and received for centuries before before uh, Constantine came around. There's actually proof of this one little fragment. It's called the Muratorian Fragment uh, that actually lists by, I believe it's about 150 AD. Uh, so this is about 50 years after uh, John, the Apostle John, would have died, um, depending on how you date his death. Uh, but 150 AD, maybe even sooner than that, I can remember correctly, but it basically has a list of what the New Testament was believed to be by this point in time, and it contains 22 of the 27 books of the New Testament. Hmm. Uh, now, this shouldn't surprise us that it's missing a few books. These these letters and gospels of the New Testament were being written by hand, mm-hmm. and they were written usually from one person to a to a certain set of people or another person in a particular place. At that point, the book would have to be written, copied by hand, and sent somewhere else, and so on and so forth. And so it would take time for books to make it all over the empire. If you're sending, if you're sending a letter, we'll say, across the sea, a thousand miles to the south, it's going to take a while for that same letter to make its way a thousand miles to the north of you, right? It's going to take time for these things to, to travel around and to be, become widely known and accepted and so it wasn't until the fourth century that the church was able to meet in council and and discuss which books different regions of the christian world had had since the beginning of their existence and so churches were able to go back and say yeah we've been using this book for for centuries all the way back to the first century and we've always believed it to have been written by an apostle Mm -hmm. um or somebody who had access to an apostle. Yes, yeah. exactly. So there were certain criteria that the, that the church used to recognize which books were legitimately a part of the canon and which were not. And so I, I like to summarize these these criteria, and maybe there's more, but my research has turned up this. Apostolicity, which means basically is the book written by an apostle or somebody who was commissioned by an apostle to write it, like mm-hmm like Luke, for for example. Or the Gospel of Mark is believed to have Peter as its source. Yeah. And so those are, that's the important thing. Is it written by an apostle or somebody directly under the supervision, you could say, of an apostle? Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one would be Catholicity, which means how universally has this book been accepted throughout the Christian world? If they could go back and show that churches in this region and churches in this region have had this book dating back as far as I can tell to the first century and it's been widely accepted by all of us in different places that's a good that's a good uh, hint that this book is is legitimate mm-hmm. um, another one would be liturgical usage it was has it has a certain book been used in worship services have different segments or portions or passages of a book been used in liturgies going back to the beginning uh, in the early part of the Christian church uh, most of the time, liturgies were pretty structured and were were written liturgies, uh, and so you would find passages of scripture in these liturgies. And so, if it had been used in worship for for a long time, that would also be more proof. And then finally, consistent theology: does the book's uh, theology fit what's been passed down in the regula fide? The regula fide is basically uh, like the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed sort of organically grows out of uh, various creedal statements that eventually by about 150 A.D. became the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't written by the Apostles, but it is a faithful summary of the Apostles' beliefs. Mm-hmm. So people were, were able to say, does a certain book fall in line with this orthodox faith that we've been, has been passed down to us via the creed that we have learned? So, for example, the Gospel of Peter, an apocryphal book of the New Testament, mentions that that Jesus died at the hands of Herod Antipas. Uh, I believe I have that right, mm. uh, and and not Pontius Pilate. And so they they there's a mistake in um, in who was responsible for Christ's death. And so this is very clearly out of line with what the Apostles' Creed says, which says that he was he was killed by Pontius Pilate, right? Mm-hmm. So those sorts of things were helpful in, in trying to 
understand which books were legitimate and which books were not. Yeah, and uh, just as we said with the Trinity, there is a certain amount of mystery and um, movement of God to establish this canon. Um, We like to think of things in our post-Enlightenment scientific era as being so immediate that uh, it can be difficult to understand how things used to work in the yeah. ancient world. Um, like, yeah, exactly. for example, uh, uh, Zach brings up this this little manuscript that had 22 of the 27 books. Um, and our modern brain thinks, oh, so just those 22 should have been included and um, mm-hmm. uh, or, uh, then, then more, sh- sorry, 29 books of the New Testament. Um, so it's missing seven. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in our internet world, it's it's easy to think that um, that things would have been as immediate and as as sort of quick and universal as hmm. uh, as as they are now. But um, this isn't to say that there is some other manuscript that we'll never be able to find that had hmm. all twenty nine, you know, right yeah. on it. And um, um, yeah. it, it's possible. I, I think it's probably unlikely that that would have existed even that early. But um, that's it's amazing that we even have that manuscript and we're discovering more manuscripts um, every 10 years or so. There'll be some uh, fragment that's been found Um, just a few years ago. There was a fragment of the gospel of Mark that was found with infrared technology on, um, on a mummy. Um, And so a, a mummy had been wrapped in parchment. It was probably a poorer person's mummy a mummified body, and thanks to infrared technology, they found that the gosp- parts of the Gospel of Mark were on this mummific- mummified body. Yeah, and uh, there's really there's no way they could have read it even 15 years ago. But thanks to technology, uh, they they found these this Greek lettering, and wow, and and that was very very early mm-hmm. um, manuscript of the Gospel of Mark, and it was in Egypt, which is mm-hmm. um, of course not where the gospel was written so it would have had to travel there yeah. the person would have had to die and you know have access to this and so um the more we learn uh and the more technology and archaeology is revealing actually the more solid our canon becomes and um yeah the we more... can see god's superintending yeah of the whole process yeah and and in in that way um it's even all the more convincing to me that that the canon is legitimate and um god's word is uh is what it is what we say it is it is written by the apostles or those who had access to the apostles um it's not as though they make all these discoveries and whoa this is way different than the, the bible that we have today the dead sea scrolls certainly um confirmed um particularly books like isaiah mm-hmm. uh that uh they are really true to the original manuscripts. Um, of course, we don't have any original manuscripts, any original Paul's Paul's letters or Isaiah's mm-hmm. work writing down. But it seems uh, like it's a very reliable source of uh, of truth. So, yeah, we have way more copies of the manuscripts of the New Testament than we do of things like the Odyssey, yeah, or of things by Plato or Aristotle. And we still believe those things to be accurate portrayals of those of those ancient stories or ancient philosophers. Uh, and so we have lots of reason to believe that the New Testament and the Old Testament, as we have them, are accurate in our in our Bibles today. Yeah. So um, there are other, um, I would say, easier to dismiss. Um, accusations against a Christian faith. One hmm. that that you would maybe hear from uh, somebody in the more theologically liberal, theologically progressive camp is, um, and then maybe from some very simplistic evangelicals, would be that they're just Jesus followers. And the Apostle Paul um, presents some problems for them. And um, what we need to get back to is um, the teachings of Jesus, uh, the stuff that Jesus was about, um, such people really like to draw a dichotomy, a, a difference, a, a big dividing line between the ministry of Jesus and um, the work of this angry guy, the Apostle Paul. Um, so, by the way, when they're doing that, they're throwing out Scripture itself, um, and uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're making some some pretty 
bold assertions, uh, which are actually based on the Bible um, and and misinterpret misinterpretations of the Bible that they even have. And so it's really a self-defeating premise because you have to trust the Bible to a certain extent to make any claim about Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, even, even without that self-defeating premise, um, we could say that the ministry of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and the gospel that the Apostle Paul preached um, and, and staked his life on are the same gospel. And this is very easily provable. That's what makes it uh, a, a, uh, one, of, one of our list here of um, bad arguments against the Christian faith. Jesus' gospel and Paul's gospel are the same gospel. It's salvation from sin, from death, through Christ's death and resurrection. Yeah, so some people will just say King, Jesus came to proclaim a kingdom, right? He was yeah. some sort of great teacher. Uh, he was a he was a warrior for for justice for the for the poor speaking for the truth oppressed. To power. Yeah. Speaking truth to power, and that's what got him killed. He wasn't really worried about saving sinners from their sin by his death and so on. But it's quite clear that all along throughout Jesus's life, the whole telos the aim of all things in his life was his death and his resurrection yeah. uh, he, he came quite clearly to to give his life and in fact this is what he says in mark 10 45 he says for even the son of man did not come to be served but to served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so he comes with his death in mind uh, you could see this very clearly uh, right before and right after the transfiguration, he, he gets into a conversation with his disciples and tells them tells them exactly what's going to happen. He must suffer and be rejected and be killed. Uh, and this is where Peter says, "No, Lord, you can't let that happen. You can't you can't do that." Uh, and he says, "Get behind me, Satan!" Right? Because Jesus knows that this is where he's heading. He's heading to Jerusalem. He is going to die. He is going to give his life. It's not just going to be taken from him. He's going to lay it down willingly for his people. Uh, and why? Well, he says, for a, as a ransom for many, this is his whole point. He's going to lay his life down to make a payment with his life for his people. And you he have came, John the Baptist saying this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? Exactly. Same thing. Exactly. And we see that again also in, in Revelation, that theme picked back up by John. Uh, about Jesus being the lamb. Uh, he is going to come and make propitiation for the sin of his people. And this is how his kingdom is is built. Mm-hmm. And so to say that Jesus and Paul preach two different gospels is just miles off of the truth. And Paul, of course, didn't know didn't know Christ uh, during his time on earth. Uh Acts relates the story that that Jesus and Paul had a confrontation on the Damascus Road. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to say that Paul knew nothing of Jesus is really incredibly off. And this is proved really in Galatians 1, where Paul gives his story of how he became an apostle of Christ. And he goes to Jerusalem to meet uh, with the other apostles, yeah. and they give him the right hand of fellowship, as he says there in, in Galatians 1, which means that they are on the same page. They hear him and his his gospel that he's preaching, and they say, yes, this this is real, this is valid, this is accurate, what you're saying. And so they saw him as an apostle of Christ as well. Yeah, and the accusation is often Jesus is about the kingdom and Paul is about atonement yeah. and sort of the the... Well, Christians, uh, I would say, can can get wrapped up into that as well. Um, somebody who is very anti-Christian would say Jesus is about love, and Paul ruined it. You know, mm-hmm. he made it about theology and mm-hmm. um, even right. sin and things like that. Um, but the irony, actually, of a statement like that is that one of the central atonement texts of the New Testament what wasn't Paul? It was First John four. Um, and so this would have been written by John, one of Jesus' disciples. And, um, yeah. and so that would be First John 4, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, 
but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so um, that is uh, one of one of the clearest descriptions of the gospel. And um, it wasn't it wasn't the apostle Paul. It's not like Paul mm-hmm. was just inventing this atonement theology that was foreign to Peter, to John, um, to James. Um, you know mm-hmm. some of the other apostles, so it 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 doesn't hold up. I I really like um, Herman Bovink's description of the gospel of the Christian faith, hmm. and um, the reason that I like it is it works for the gospel, of course, that Jesus presented about himself. It works for um, the gospel nuances that we find in Paul's letters and John's letters and so forth. So Herman Bovink said the essence of the Christian religion consists in the reality that the creation of the Father, ruined by sin, is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. <laughs> and so there in that description, to me, is just very biblical because it captures kingdom and um, atonement, yeah. uh, the work of Christ. It's the tr- it's a Trinitarian work in nature. And um, <laughs> Bavink really expertly weaves trinity atonement and kingdom all together in one little sentence there and and that is the gospel um, it is a gospel of the kingdom of god which is yeah. um created by the grace of the spirit and which is um really centered on the work of christ yeah so those two cannot be pitted against one another yeah uh, there's there's just there's just no way Re- reading <laughs> paul you can see He's very in tune with what Christ has taught and what, with what Christ has done. And I think Romans 12 also is a really good example of Paul saying Jesus-y things, right? Mm. So, um, you could say Jesus says some Paul things mm. um, about when he's talking about his death and his, his uh, redemption for mankind through his ransom, paying for sin. Uh, but Paul also says Jesusy things, you know, overcome evil with good, yeah. uh, bless those who who persecute you, um, th- th- those sort of things. Live at peace so long as it depends on you. Those are things yeah. we see in Romans chapter twelve, and you could see very much Paul's uh, deep agreement with what Christ has taught. Also, yeah, First Corinthians thirteen to me weaves perfectly in with the Beatitudes and yeah. uh, what love is and what, how, how yeah. Jesus describes the blessed person in the Sermon on the Mount is, uh, oh, it's, you know, it's meekness, it's uh, mm-hmm. poverty of spirit, it's being a peacemaker, so forth. So um, hopefully that's one, I would guess that wouldn't be one that a non-Christian would levy against our faith as much as right, yeah. sort of an in-house debate, you might say. Um and honestly, I think that this is going to ramp up in the next, uh, it, during our ministry, the course of yeah. our ministry over the next 30, 40 years, is people saying, we want to be about Jesus, we don't want to be about Paul, um, which Paul says something about in First Corinthians, of course, that you say you follow Paul, you know, and <laughs> no, we follow, we follow Christ. Paul says, I do, I follow Christ. Um and so he, he addresses that very clearly in the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians as well. Yeah. Um, now, shifting maybe into more of the camp of a skeptic, a agnostic or atheist um, hmm. accusation that, that I think is, is a, a weak argument against Christianity would be um, that Christianity is hateful, patriarchal, oppressive. Um, it is meant to keep people down, um, particularly women, um, Mm-hmm. It is meant to divide people, um, and uh, I would say, firstly, uh, Christians have to admit that people in the lowercase c church and the institutional church have used their Christian authority for such things. And so, we would before we mm-hmm. want to get to the counter argument. We have to recognize that much evil has been done in the past in the name of Jesus, and um, it's been a, a clear violation of the third commandment. It's been a misrepresentation of who Jesus is, who, what the Bible teaches, who God is, and and so before we 
uh, react too strongly to that argument, which I don't think is a very good one, we do have to say that it is rooted in some reality that self-prescribed Christians have done terrible things. Yeah. I think there's we can't know every particular case that this has happened. Uh, we've yeah. seen this more recently with the whole Church 2 movement. Um, but even looking far back into the past, I couldn't possibly give a defense of everything the church has ever done. I wouldn't want to give that sort of defense. But I think it's also, it's 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 true, I would say, um, or at least a defensible case to, to be made, that Christianity has actually worked to overthrow mm. uh, much oppression and, and uh, unjust... In, or injustice in, mm-hmm. in different systems of, of human life. Uh, one of the great things about studying church history is that you see this time and time again. You, while, yes, it's true you have to confront the sin of Christians and their failure to live up to, to God's word, it's also that very same word which has given people the inspiration, the motivation, the willingness uh, to see how the world could be different and to strive towards that uh, with God's power. Um, you, you know, what's interesting to me recently is I've just been listening to a lot of podcasts. I keep hearing this name, Tom Holland, mm-hmm. and it's not Spider-Man. It's a different Tom <laughs> Holland. Uh, and it makes it easy to remember. It's Tom <laughs> Holland, uh, yeah, the not Spider-Man yeah. one. Yep. And so he's... <laughs> He's written a book uh, recently called Dominion, which is really interesting. And that book, I've I've not read it all the way through. I've le- read uh, little bits and pieces of it. Um, I'm hoping to read it at some point in the future. But I've listened to a number of podcasts with him being interviewed and giving his his story. And he's a historian who was really in, in, interested and ever a, since not a he believer. was. Yeah, he's not yeah. A Christian. Yeah. I think he's moving in that direction yeah. now. Yeah. But uh, he began as an agnostic, basically, right. in writing the book. Right, and so yeah. he was, uh, he was really interested early on in his academic career with studying ancient uh, Greece and ancient Rome and different uh, different tribes, different philosophers. So he was really into Sparta, and as he was really intrigued with with the Spartans and their their bent towards military might and aggression uh, is of course it's a really inspiring story in some ways mm. uh, King Leonidas and the 300 who made their stand popularized by the movie several years ago but he realized as he was looking at this culture how foreign they were to him mm. if a baby was seen to have any defects they were tossed out they weren't good enough that baby would just be killed pretty ruthlessly they would just leave him out outside the city gates uh, to be left for dead. And so he saw these sorts of things and realized, you know, this is an interesting culture. It's very fascinating, but it's also very cruel. Hmm. What makes it so cruel? And what makes me feel like I I view this culture as being a cruel culture? Uh, And so as he began to study, even though he didn't consider himself a Christian, in fact was pretty opposed to Christianity, he began to realize that over the course of, of the past two millennia, the force that has changed the world uh, so much has been Christianity. And the reason that he, as a secular agnostic person, felt the way that he did about various moral issues or ethical issues was because our culture had been so deeply influenced by Christianity's moral framework that he he didn't even notice. Uh, And so he began to realize that a lot of his his morality for why he felt thing, certain things were wrong and certain things were right hmm. had been shifted because of the Christian church. And so one of the stories he does tell in the book that I've, I've read uh, is about um, St. Macrina in the 4th century. She's, one of, she's the oldest sister of two other famous theologians from church history, St. Basil uh, of Caesarea and St. Gregory of Nyssa. And so they she... Were all- Siblings? They were siblings. I think oh. there was 12 kids in the family, and oh, she was the yeah. oldest. That's awesome. And she was known not for being the great theologian uh, per se, but for being the great lover of people. And she actually would go around different trash heaps uh, and collect children that had been thrown and left for dead, a little infants. She would take them in and care for them and raise them as her own. And her, her brother Basil actually would... Uh, would start the Basiliad, which is sort of, some people would say the 
really the first hospital in that they would not only just treat things, you, you would have lots of lots of temples in, in the ancient Greek world where you could go in and have something treated, but it was part of a sort of ritual act of worship. There would often be a fine uh, with it or a payment you'd have to make. But the Basiliad would take people in, pay for them, even if they needed extended care, it would keep them in, look after them, educate them if they needed education. It would take p- sick people off the streets and, and take them in and care for them, all without payment. Uh, and so some people would say that this is the first sort of modern hospital where people would come no matter what mm. and be taken care of. Uh, orphans were taken in here. Widows were taken in as well. And so there was this deep-rooted belief that because the image of God is in all of these people, we need to care for them. Uh, they are they have dignity, they have worth. Even the weakest of the weak, who the, the ancient world would have just tossed aside and said, we don't need you, we have, we have no need for you, you don't add anything to society, therefore we can, we can ignore you. The Christians were the ones who were saying, no, you're, you're inherently valuable. We're going to fight to keep you alive, we're going mm-hmm. to care for you. Uh, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to to do all that we can to serve you. And so th- through this, Christianity over time began to change the way the world saw the value and the position of weak, poor, and sick people. Yeah, and that isn't just a historical example, but there are many modern-day examples of basically the exact same thing happening. So if you're a Christian in Kathmandu in Nepal, hmm. um, you are going to adopt unwanted children. And so it's the expectation of the yeah. church in, in Kathmandu, which is there are very not very many Christians there. It's a very um, hmm. a Buddhistic nation. Um, but when you become a Christian, the expectation is you're going to have 10 to 15 children in your home, and they're going to be your children because there are so many unwanted children hmm. there. Um, and uh, it's also a very animistic culture. And uh, they found that um, the people of of some of these um these nations are are kept down by um shamans basically uh local mm. priests who require a lot of payment if your child gets sick the 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 priest is going to offer uh a sacrifice for you and it's a way of exploiting the poor uh, and so when christianity comes in and they say you can pray to god you don't have to go over to the shaman or the, yeah. the witch doctor anymore um first of all the the local authorities uh, hate that because um, it seems to pull authority away from them. Hmm. Even though the irony there is that Christians should be the best citizens in the world, um, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it really destroys systems of exploitation of the poor, um, yeah. where they don't have to go to the witch doctor or the shaman anymore, um, but uh, they can they can uh, just pray for themselves hmm. and they can rely on Jesus. Um, you have the exact situation of. Um, saving little babies happening very recently in China when the one-child policy was causing people to literally throw their children into trash heaps. Yeah. And so there's a documentary called One Child Nation um, that will certainly make you weep, and I, I really don't... Uh, I recommend it for people to watch, but um, certainly a child should not watch it because there are images of, of um, thrown babies thrown away in garbage bags. Wow. and. Um, and what happened in China in the 80s and 90s is that Christians uh, said this is a problem and we're going to uh, we're going to help solve it by taking little little children in, particularly girls. Um, mm. And so it's not just an old story, but um, Christianity at its purest form um, is not just about going to heaven someday and uh, having your sins forgiven, but about caring for the poor. Um, you can even see that in the Bible itself, where Jesus teaching on divorce in Mark 10 is amazingly supportive of women. Um, women were mm-hmm. discarded uh, very easily through uh, divorce for any and every reason. And so Jesus says, no, what God has joined together, let man not divide and, and put asunder. Um, and then it's really interesting in Mark 10, the very next section is where Jesus calls little children to himself, which mm-hmm. also would have been... Uh, easily dismissed, uh, disregarded, and but Jesus says, "Let hmm. the little children come to me, for the h- kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these." And and so we see uh, 
ironically also in the teaching of Paul, where he's teaching on marriage in Ephesians 5, yeah. and he calls husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, and then hus- wives submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. And it's a picture of uh, mutual submission, yeah. of mutual care and love and respect. Um, that text is often regarded by some feministic people as oppressive. Oh, yeah. But it's very much the opposite. It's a call for husbands to give themselves up for their wives and sacrifice them their their own will in some regard but wives also to have a submissive, respectful um, attitude towards their husbands and to trust their husbands. And so um, you see that not just in scriptures, but really all throughout church history, um, even ascending all the way to the level of kings, kings like uh, St. Louis the Ninth of France, who um, would go and serve the poor. Um, yeah. The, the reason he did this is his Christian faith prompted him to go and care for the wounds of poor people. Yeah. Um, so are there examples of Christianity being leveraged for personal gain? Absolutely. It's happening today in the the um, prosperity gospel movement um, where people like Benny Hinn are exploiting poor people in the Philippines and um, some nations uh, where where people are really trusting in those faith healers that is not Christianity at all, um, but real, pure, biblical Christianity um, described in the book of Acts and the ministry of Jesus and Paul is going to be full of love and, and care for the least of these. Yeah, my suspicion, of course, is that I think people can at least grant that Christians are not entirely oppressive of women or of racial minorities or of poor people. Of course, there's a checkered past, you could say. Uh, but my suspicion with this argument that people make the argument that Christianity is inherently oppressive, what they particularly are focusing on is sexuality. Hmm. Um, and particularly within that, the LGBTQ uh, question, uh, the, the, that whole issue. And yeah, so, sort of what biblical sexuality as, as sort of defined by the scriptures as opposed to modern American manifestations of like a sexual ethic which right. are, which are very different yeah. right and there's there's a lot of things that could be said to this we do have an episode on this if you're curious and learning more uh i would s- s- simply say i don't think christians I don't, I don't think christianity is inherently oppressive towards lgbtq people no. um proof of that maybe you're wondering uh hmm. not to use them as tokens but they are very helpful voices in this, Sam Albury, Wesley Hill, Rosaria Butterfield, and and many others who Beckett Cook, yeah, Beckett Cook. Uh, there's Beckett Cook is a really interesting one actually. His story is very very uh, helpful, and so there's a lot of work that's being done on this. But I don't think Christians have, at least the Christians I know. I can't speak for all Christians out there, uh, but the Christians I know have no hatred in their hearts for LGBTQ people. Uh, none actually whatsoever. Um, maybe there's political disagreements with them that make them align differently with than LGBT people tend to do. Um, but I don't think there's hatred in, in, in our hearts and or, or desire to oppress them or to ruin their lives. Um, and so there's a lot that could be said on this, mm-hmm. but even they, the Christian will say, are deserving of our utmost respect, care, and love yeah. uh, simply because they are human, simply because they are made in the image of God. And there is no desire to, to treat them unjustly. Uh, so Yeah. Well, to give a very personal example, there have been homosexual people in our church mm-hmm. uh, recently for uh, funerals and things like that. And... Um, mm-hmm. I, I certainly, um, I made an effort, um, knowing that, that that was probably a bit of a difficult thing for them to come into our church. Um, usually, um, uh, those in the gay community have a pretty good sense for which churches are going to be open and affirming of them, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of code for encouraging of their lifestyle and their sexual practices and which churches are going to be 
opposed to same-sex activity. And so they would very mm-hmm. easily pick up that we would be a congregation that holds to a biblical um, definition of, of marriage, a biblical definition of sexuality, and, and what is healthy sexuality. Mm-hmm. And uh, so making an, a real effort to, uh, to go in and greet them and and to make sure they're they're aware that they are welcome at our church um and um hmm. and and that really did come from the bottom of my own heart as a minister who wants to care for these people and who sees them as real people with uh real struggles that are that go far beyond just their their sexual identity Amen um, to that. and um and i i looked around it and saw these people often surrounded by you know smiles and conversation and um, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, to your point, I really don't believe that the, the Christian people that I know who, who think about this in a biblical way are, are not seeing such people as pariahs to be cast off. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we, we would love for, uh, for these people to, to come and, 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 yeah. and, and enjoy fellowship with us. And the last uh, thing that I, yeah. I want them to do, well, I should say this more carefully, I, I'm not really worried about making gay people not gay. That is, mm. that is not a, a, ever a thought that it crosses my mind that I want this person to no longer to be To be gay. heterosexual and get married and have a family right. and all that. Yeah. 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 I simply want people, all people, gay, straight, anywhere in between, to simply know Christ and to be devoted to Christ, mm-hmm. to trust Christ, to give their lives for Christ. Um, so does that have implications? Oh, you bet it does. It has implications for every person who follows Christ. Right. It's the narrow way. It's not the easy way. Uh, but that is what I'm concerned with. My goal is not a anti-gay campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not the flag I would ever want to raise. And part of the reason that we can talk about this in love and, and and say that it's loving to call people to celibacy and to sexual purity and to a biblical uh, lifestyle um, that where, where sexual activity is only enacted in the covenant of marriage. Part of the reason that we can make statements like that is not just what the Bible says, but what we have heard from a Rosaria Butterfield and Beckett Cook, who mm-hmm. have lived in the homosexual community in this lifestyle and um, who, who profess very much that it it was a drain on their soul. Um, um, Jackie Hill Perry is another yeah. um, voice in the Gospel Coalition mm-hmm. um, who has lived in this this lifestyle and just absolutely struggled and has has come out into submission to Christ, submission to the Word of God, and is just living in in pure joy and um, and real fellowship with other people, and so. Mm-hmm. Um, for some that will be in in a heterosexual marriage, like for Rosaria Butterfield or Jackie Hill Perry, um, for others it will be a call to celibacy, like for Sam Albury, or to my knowledge, Beckett Cook. Hmm. Um, and so um, it's it's a call into life. It's certainly not driven by a hatred of these people, but really a call yeah. that they would um, that they would experience. And I think for some Christians, it could be driven by a hatred. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's something that needs to be also discussed. Uh, we don't have to discuss it here, so to speak, but, yeah, but it's something that needs to come into the equation. You're right to the original point that that Christianity can be presented as hateful. Um, mm-hmm. You know, oft, I find that it's so often the case that those with a shallow Christian faith can get sucked into the, more of the political attitudes, politically driven attitudes towards mm-hmm. Um, homosexuals or uh, people who are pro-choice, for example, and um, that is that is going to be uh, fraught with all kinds of bad communication, lack of nuance. Um, hmm. Instead of what we need, I think, is a fuller, more robust Christianity that can talk with that neighbor that you have as homosexual um, mm-hmm. in a way that is compassionate. But doesn't compromise on our on our ethics and um, what God's word says. So yeah. the, the call isn't to sort of jettison the Bible and just sort of throw our our arms open to uh, just whatever the world's theology is today. Hmm. Um, 
but uh, but neither is it just to hunker down and stay far away. And and so a fuller reformed Christianity will will cause people to think deeply, and I think to be moved in love um, and truth towards um, not just uh, the poor or you know our some random person, but really to mm-hmm. people who feel very unloved by the church historically. Yeah, and for any Christian listener, if I can speak to you, I, I would say that more and more, I think that this is where the apologetic case for Christianity is going to have to be yeah made. Yeah, I, I think. If we could think about the transcendentals, truth, beauty, and goodness about Christianity, I think people maybe 20, 30, 50 years ago cared a lot about the arguments for the truth of Christianity, and that's still very, very important. We have to make that case, but we also need to be very aware of how we are showing and explaining and making the case for Christianity's ethical goodness Mm -hmm. and its beauty as a lived-out way of life. Um, because people see that Christianity is, in their minds, a bad thing. They see it also then as an ugly thing. It's an ugly way of life. And so the case has to be made not just for its truth, which is forever going to be an important part of it, but we also have to make the case for how Christianity is good and it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And so um, that's a great place to, I think... um, conclude our conversation and when we say these are bad arguments we don't necessarily mean that people who would make these arguments are stupid um these are very popular arguments against the christian faith but um hopefully we've shown that the christian has a pretty solid ground to stand on when um responding to some of these arguments about our theology or our ethics yeah it's been a wild ride we've covered a lot in, in this <laughs> yeah there's episode, so there's a number of on. directions we could have gone even with some of these other ones we could could have talked about the perception that uh anti-abortion legislation is against women and so forth and and so we we won't get into all that but uh i think that we can say christianity as we've experienced it in our lives and as we read about it in history um at, at its root and, and in its pure form is beautiful, is good, and is yeah. uh, life-giving yeah. to um, its adherents. So thank you for listening, everyone, and um, we will try our best to release next week's episode on time <laughs> on Tuesday, but um, thanks for your encouragement uh, for those yeah. who are listening, and uh, have a great rest of your week. Yeah, grace and peace, guys. <laughs>